This is the Janine Pirro Show. Now, here's Judge Janine Pirro. Joining me now is a seasoned political advisor. Please join me in welcoming Stephen Miller to the Judge Janine Tunnel to Towers Foundation show. Uh, I'm sure you've seen Stephen on Fox News. And before then, he was a political advisor who served as senior advisor for policy and White House director of speech writing for President Trump. Uh, He is a man who knows of what he speaks. And uh, when you hear him, if you've never heard him before, you will agree with me. Stephen Miller, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Uh, I think this is a very important topic, and I wanted someone uh, as as knowledgeable as you, Stephen, to talk about uh, what I'm seeing and what is frightening me. And it's not just the war that Israel is involved in right now as a result of the October 7th massacre. Uh, but it is this anti-Semitism that we are experiencing. It almost makes me feel like I'm, I'm, I'm in a pre-World War II moment. The only thing that's missing is Kristallnacht, that uh, the, the, the fact that the world would rise up not when innocent babies were murdered uh, or when women were burned alive uh, or, you know, 1,300 Israelis are killed or Americans along with that and hostages, but over a lie that Israel bombed a hospital, which, you know, it, it was clearly a lie. There was no bombed hospital, no 500 body bags. It was a misfire from Hamas, but within minutes, the world was ready to stand up against Israel. Talk to me. Yes, well, there is, as you say, a deeply alarming rise in global anti-Semitism, both with the American left here at home and in countries around the world. And what's really shocking, as we've seen, are these calls both from Democrat members of Congress as well as foreign countries, for Israel to show restraint and to, and from our own president to show restraint and to engage in um, in a light touch with Gaza when they have just been a victim of the most heinous and barbaric terrorist attack humanly imaginable. And you know you can't just, you can't conceive of a situation where another country uh, would be attacked by a terrorist. Uh, refugee camp in the same way, and people would be saying, oh, well, we better have a ceasefire. There is so much Israeli blood that is spilled on the streets. There are so many mothers and fathers whose children have been murdered and ripped away from them. There is so much indescribable human tragedy and suffering. And Israel has put up with this for years now. In other words, year after year after year, Families in Israel have to live with the knowledge and reality that there is a terrorist camp operating on its border. Any other country, any other country would have removed that terrorist camp a long time ago. The reason why they haven't is specifically because Israel is a tiny speck in the vast Middle East and the vast world has to be so sensitive to international opinion. And for that reason, because they they depend upon commerce with other countries and imports from other countries and military relationships and military deals with other countries, they have to be extremely sensitive to global opinion. And that is the reason why, after all these years, Hamas still operates with relative impunity right there on the Gaza Strip. 
Well, okay, so, you know, it's very interesting that you're right. It is, Israel is a speck in the Middle East, and and in order to survive, they have to be, I guess, to to be crass about it, they have to be somewhat political. Uh, But the rise in anti-Semitism in this country, uh, aside from, I, you know, I could almost fathom it in, in the Arab world, but let's be straight about this, Stephen. And, and I'm sure my listeners know this. There's not one Arab country that was willing to take the Palestinians. None of them want them. Uh, El Sisi even said, I don't want them. King Abdullah of Jordan said, I'm drawing a red line. I don't want them. Nobody wants them, but Israel has to deal with them every day. And the president of the United States, States goes to Israel and says, I'm giving $100 million in humanitarian aid. Make sure, Israel, you make sure that it gets to the Palestinians and Hamas doesn't abscond with it, as if Israel then has to monitor to make sure that the enemy doesn't take money away uh, from the intended uh, uh, recipients. The whole thing is bizarre. Well, there's two very important facts you can derive from the refusal of neighboring Arab states to take Palestinian Arab Muslims. So in other words, there are Arab Muslim states refusing to take other Arab Muslims. There's two things you can learn from that. One is, is their own fears about the radicalization of this population. In other words, their own concerns from a security standpoint about radical elements that are pervasive within the Palestinian population. The second Mm -hmm. thing is, as has been observed by many other people, that this has never been about ever about the well-being of Palestinians living in Gaza. This has always been about a cudgel to use against Israel, right? This this problem of, of stateless Arab Muslims living on the border of Israel could be solved instantaneously, again, if Arab Muslim states took them in. But they don't want them in for the first reason I said, and secondly, because there's a desire in the Middle East, because it takes pressure off of regimes to be able to have Israel be the villain. That's what they want. They want to be able to say to their own populations that you need to be mad at Israel, and the Islamic radicals need to be mad at Israel, and not focus on whatever is happening in our own country. So that's a major element of why there is a refusal to actually do anything constructively to solve the problem. And so again, Israel is caught in this paradigm where they have not been able to do what they need to do to solve the problem because they would, they would lose international support. Um, but they also can't count on the Arab states to do anything either. So it really is a, it is a terrible, just a, a never-ending nightmare for Israel. Uh, I've heard a lot of theorizing. I've heard what, uh, what Hamas has said publicly uh, about engaging in this feint of pretending that they were interested in in governing and domestic affairs. Because remember, Hamas was elected uh, back in around 2007. Seven, right. But the, uh, and in reality, they were just using all the time to prepare for a terrorist attack. I don't really know what to make of the intelligence labs, both in Israel and the United States. Uh, obviously, that's the kind of thing where, uh, if I was in the administration, uh, I can assure you that... Um, I would be asking questions about, and we would be getting answers to. From here on the outside, it's very hard to draw any conclusions, except to say that you don't want to underestimate your enemy. I think that's sort of the biggest point I would say in general here, is that uh, do not underestimate evil. Do not underestimate the craftiness of your enemy. Um, When you are dealing with somebody who spends every waking minute thinking about how to destroy or eradicate you, they are capable of, of... 
of pulling off potentially devastating surprise attacks, you know, whereas the people in Israel are spending their time thinking about their jobs and their families and, uh, and their futures. You have this jihadist death squad known as Hamas that spends every minute of their lives thinking about how to martyr themselves to eradicate the Jewish state. And so you really just must never, it's a general rule in life, you must never underestimate your enemy. Well, you can never underestimate them. And, and, you know, they always, when it comes to war, they always have a vote in it, you know, so you can decide that you want to do X, Y, or Z, and they may have other plans. And I think that the biggest problem going forward uh, is, uh, you know, the the uh, the urban warfare in Gaza, which, um, you know, will be soon, I guess. You know, when I saw uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu talking to the uh, the soldiers on the front, you know, it's clear or so it appears that, that you know, they're gunned up and ready and uh, it should happen at any time. But uh, do you see any uh, the chance of Americans uh, being involved in, in greater uh, participation other than military and money? Well, there's no reason whatsoever for the United States to have any role at all in combat operations. Now, rescue operations of American citizens is a wholly different situation. And obviously, um, the United States always has a national security interest um, in conducting rescue operations as well as capture and kill missions uh, for individuals who have murdered American citizens. You know, the way that President Trump took out Baghdadi, took out Soleimani, took out many other terrorist leaders. But Mm -hmm. in terms of in terms of war, in terms of Israel engaging in direct combat operations against Hamas, there's no reason whatsoever for the United States to have any involvement um, other than whatever our existing security and financial relationship is with Israel um, that has been longstanding. Okay. Uh, but the, the, in fact, it would be incredibly counterproductive, uh, vastly, enormously counterproductive, for the United States to become a co-belligerent in this conflict. It is important, notwithstanding everything else that I said, it is important for the region, for the United States, to be able to act in the position, where and when appropriate, of being able to work on peace settlements and peace deals, as President Trump did with the Abraham Accords. Well, that's okay. Let's let's segue right there, Stephen Miller. I mean, you were very much involved in the Abraham Accords. Tell us... Tell us what was forged and what is at stake now. Well, all credit for the Abraham Accords, of course, goes to President Trump. And then mm-hmm. Jared Kushner, who I know you know well, mm-hmm. uh, did an incredible, uh, incredible job with the Abraham Accords. But the, the, the core of it is the normalization of relationships between Israel and its Arab neighbors to establish peace and stability in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So the, the the cornerstone of peace in the Middle East for years had just been the peace agreement between Israel and Egypt, and then everything had been frozen, and there had been no new peace deal since. And when President Trump was able to find common grounds with these Arab states that historically, um, as I mentioned earlier, had actually stoked tensions in the region, had actually created the conditions for unrest, when he's able to get these countries to find common ground with Israel, which is a just a, an extraordinary achievement mm-hmm. to normalize relationships, to have peaceful relationships with Israel, therefore to take all the tension 
and the violence out of the region. And then while doing so, an important part of this was then building a coalition that was also unified by their opposition to Iranian hegemony. And that was the other big insight that President Trump had, which is that the the common foe of nations in the Middle East is Iran. Always gets back to Iran funding these militias, funding these terrorist groups, funding these proxy wars, funding all of these horrible evils and murder all across the region. And so President Trump understood that while these different countries had many disagreements between them, they were unified by their concerns about Iran and also Iran's pursuit of nuclear weapons, which would change the whole balance of power in the Middle East. So at the same time as President Trump was pursuing these peace deals with Israel, he was financially choking off Iran. And the result of that, as we saw, was the Middle East was the calmest, most stable, most peaceful that it had ever been in memory. Okay, so Biden comes in and he re-ups the funding, allows Iran to sell on the oil market, making what, 50 billion, 100 billion in the last couple of years? Yeah, so he, he stopped enforcing the oil sanctions on Iran, which President Trump put into place so that Iran could sell oil. Uh, on the open market. And that, of course, vastly enriched Iran's coffers. And then he also formally began lifting the other economic sanctions that President Trump put into place and pursuing a um, another Iran nuclear deal, which, of course, signals, because, you know, you understand how the economy works. What you signal matters enormously. So if you signal to the world that you're going to be having regular economic relationship with Iran, that you're pursuing an agreement with Iran, Iran becomes a more attractive market. Iran becomes a safer economic bet. Iran becomes someone that you'd be willing to do business with thinking where they might be in five or ten years. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that they lifted sanctions, it's that they signal to the whole world that we're trying to pursue to rebuild an economic partnership and a, and a relationship that's profitable with Iran. Once you do that, uh, it completely changes Iran's fortunes. Iran's on the rise. Iran's on the move. And the other countries in the Middle East are back to being uh, quibbling with each other uh, again. Mm-hmm. Right, because now instead of having this unifying U.S.-led effort to counter Iranian hegemony, um, now Iran is uh, more powerful than it's been in years, and other countries return to their old ways. So it's just it's a complete 180 on the Trump foreign policy. Let me so ask you something: isolating Iran, unifying the Arab states, to disunifying the Arab states and empowering Iran. Okay, why did Biden do that, Stephen Miller? It's a great question, because Obama had the same absolute obsession with Iran, just complete, total Iran, 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 loved Iran, couldn't do enough with Iran. John Kerry, the same thing. Right. Um, I think it gets back to uh, in our in our schools, our universities, uh, the foreign policy elites like we're seeing in our college campuses now. There's this strain of thought that is uh, is very much pro-Iran and anti-Israel. And that's the academic vogue. And so, of course, Biden wouldn't think of it in those terms or say it that way, nor, nor would uh, other people working on the strategy. I think that the intellectual foundation of all of it is this theory out of our universities that Iran is the good guy and Israel is the bad guy. And that the way to make the region balanced is to reduce the power of Israel and to increase <laughs> the power of Iran. And I think that has to be what's driving There's no other explanation.
Well, I got to tell you, Stephen Miller, I am always impressed with you. Uh, you are uh, an incredible uh, source of information. Uh, I have tremendous respect for you, Stephen, personally, and everybody who's listening. Stephen is a friend. Uh, he is absolutely brilliant. I worry. I worry for uh, Americans. I worry for the Jews. Uh, Ellie Wiesel was someone that I knew, and uh, as a DA, uh, many years ago, I fought anti-Semitism, you know, on a local level and made it clear that it wasn't going to survive here. And that's when I started to understand the enormity of this problem. Uh, Stephen Miller, thank you for joining us. God thank bless. Thank you for the kind words. The feeling yeah. is mutual. God bless you, and look forward to talking soon. Thank you, Stephen Miller. All right, everyone, uh, there you have it. Uh, Stephen Miller, someone who knows of what he speaks. And never forget that commitment we made on 9-11. Honor it by donating $11 a month to the Tunnel to Towers Foundation at T2T.org. That's T2T.org. And up next here on the Judge Jeanine Tunnel to Towers Foundation show, I will gavel out with my closing argument. It's all coming up here on the Red Apple Audio Network.